Well, we're going to continue in uh, Hebrews, and we're going to continue in our study of the uh, chapter 6. And last week, I did a little bit uh, uh, broader overview in, in uh, the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to belabor that tonight, but in the book of Hebrews, there are five what are referred to as warning passages. And uh, there's uh, some been you know different approaches, but the but the but the premise is dealing in the question, especially tonight, which is probably the the little more difficult one in chapter six, is does this contradict uh, the teaching about the Christian's security as a believer, eternal security? Can a regenerate, born again follower of Jesus? Uh, can they be lost again? Can they turn away from this, their salvation and be eternally lost when once they have been saved? And so uh, and when we come to this passage, this is one that often has been the most difficult and has had different approaches. And last week we talked about the two different uh, schools of thought um, and uh, uh, whether... Uh, and how you approach these things. So I'm not going to get into that again. I believe it's online, so if you want to go back and listen to that uh, and review that. And so my, my premise that I found the most helpful in looking at these five different passages is to recognize that the writer of Hebrews is addressing a lot of different people all at once. And so in the different uh, five passages, uh, and again... Um, I'm not going to try to, because we've got a lot to cover tonight, is that they really t- tended to have an emphasis in, to a different group. Some were seekers or inquirers. They weren't Christians. Some were immature believers. Some were uh, false believers that were being addressed. So I found that to be helpful rather than trying to just say, well, this must fit this group. Because when you come to this passage here in chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 4 through 12 tonight, uh, you know, is it addressing uh, genuine believers who can be lost, or uh, is there something else going on here? So, uh, you know, like anybody, uh, and a principle in, in, in Bible study is that if there are passages that are less clear, uh, you look to other scriptures that are clear to give you uh, clarity, to give you insight, to give you principles. So if you come to a place that seems to be uh, difficult or perhaps saying something that seems contradictory, you want to you bring other scriptures in. You remember Paul talked about the whole counsel of God's Word, so that's where, again, you want to let other scriptures shed light. Uh, one of the things that, in, that scripture does teach that until uh, Christ returns, one of the things the Bible does tell us is that there will be those among in the church, among, among the believers, uh, that will have an appearance of being true, authentic Christians, but in reality uh, are not genuine believers. Um, Jesus uh, said in Matthew 7, 22, uh, he said, on that day, speaking on that day of final judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. That's not pagans or unbelievers. That seem to be people that are participating in some Christian activity. And they address him, Lord, Lord. And then uh, Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So, you know, that's always one of those that is a very sobering uh, verse because there will be those that even in that final day of judgment, their uh, self-deception, that they are still uh, waving their spiritual resume before the Lord, saying, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we do these things in your name? But Jesus said, I never knew you. Now, he's not saying I never knew you in the sense of his, uh, what's, what we would call his omniscience, all-knowing, uh, but it's knowing I never knew you in an intimate, personal way. There was no relationship there, even though on their earthly uh, sojourn, these people had tremendous activity. I mean, look at this. I mean, they were prophesying in your name, casting out demons, and doing mighty works, but they were not authentic. So again, I just remind us that uh, irregardless of how maybe one approaches uh, Hebrews chapter 6, the Bible does teach about there will be those that are among the community of believers that will not be or be counterfeit believers, that will be false believers. Uh, you remember Paul, when he was saying goodbye to the uh, uh, Ephesians uh, elders uh, in uh, Acts, uh, I think maybe 20, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly, but, but he warned those Ephesian elders and said, uh, beware, because he said, from among you will come ravenous wolves. He said, from among you from among the church, from those that are all appearance seem to be part of you, but over time their life, their works, their evidence will show their true colors, if you will, their heart. So it's kind of on that basis that when we look in Hebrews, in this passage, that in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, and we'll just kind of start at verse 4 and 5, is that these are things that sound uh, like characteristics of a true believer. Now, before we kind of do that, I want to kind of just back up a little bit because one of the things that when you approach uh, any scripture and studying, especially places that are difficult, you're like, what is that saying? Is it, is it you know, it seems to be a difficult passage uh, to interpret or to... Uh, jive with other portions of Scripture, uh, then you, you want to make sure, one, I mentioned you want to take in a broader context of God's Word, okay? Again, it's my presupposition and belief that the Bible does teach the security of the believer. There's passages in Romans 8, and we looked at these last week, in John 6, uh, all that the Father has given me, I will in no wise lose. I mean, there's Romans 8, um, and there's other portions in the totality of the New Testament that teach that. So is this something contradictory? So before we get into verses 4 and 5, it's important to go back, and uh, I'm going to try to use this and see if this works. But I believe that if you have your Bibles, if you don't have your Bibles, you're really at a disadvantage. Um, and I'm going to have it on the screen. I don't like doing it on the screen because it's a little distracting for me, especially if the technology doesn't work. But if you don't have your Bibles, uh, as I said, you're at a disadvantage because 
um, this is one of those places you really need to not just take my word for it. You need to try to see it there in, in Scripture. So we'll uh, kind of plot on here, and I'll use the overhead. But I would say the context before we come to interpreting or looking at verses uh, 4 and 5 and the rest of chapter 6 that would teach or seem to teach uh, concerning a person who is a believer rejecting or the term technically is becoming an apostate, to apostatize, A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-Z-E, apostatize or an apostate. That's more of the technical term for someone who turns or rejects the faith. So can a genuine, born-again, regenerate Christian apostatize, okay? Because if they can, then that will change some understanding of how we view the security of the believer. It'll change our understanding of a lot of, at least in my case, and I, and I assume your case as well. And again, we talked about the different approaches uh, theologically last week uh, of how there are those that see that a Christian can lose their salvation and those who believe that uh, that is not possible. So the reason I began with chapter 7, verse 22 of Matthew is for us to make sure that we have in our, in, our, uh, in our understanding the possibility that there are those that are being addressed that the writer of Hebrews is addressing that for all practical purposes they're giving an appearance of genuine faith, but evidences will show that they were never part of the genuine or are part of a regenerate or born-again Experience, but but where I kind of want to begin before we come to chapter six is to look back at verse eleven of chapter five, and the reason I go back there is because it's important to look at context, because if you just pull verses out of thin air without looking at what is happening before or what is happening after then I think you perhaps will fall into a misinterpretation and miss uh, who is being addressed, who's being talked about, and what the subject and emphasis of the writer is. So if you remember, and again, if you have your, a, a physical Bible, uh, that'll be very helpful to you. But if you remember in chapter 5, uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the high priest, the priestly nature of Jesus. And he's spending a lot of time between verses 1 of chapter 5 and verse 10 uh, about the role of this high priest. And he talks about the order of Melchizedek. Very deep, uh, some deep teaching here. But when we come to verse 11, it's as though he kind of stops a bit uh, from this deep uh, insight into the high priestly nature of Jesus as Messiah and he kind of hit taps the brakes a little bit when he comes to chapter 5, verse 11. And notice what he says here. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So, so he kind of again stops from this deep insight into Jesus as our high priest and and kind of almost like remembers who he's talking to, and, and, 
And then he goes on to say, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And here's the uh, emphasis here. It's like he's saying you're spiritual babies. You need milk, not solid food. And the reason, again, I'm emphasizing this is before we come to the passages in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, remember who the context is. He's addressing a critical situation he sees with many of these believers in this audience that's called the Hebrews. It doesn't say they were a part of a church per se, even though they were in the church, but they were Jewish believers who had once and are ethnically Jewish, but now had, uh, had professed faith in Christ. And remember the context, the big picture of Hebrews, is that they were being uh, tempted, if you will, to renounce Christianity because of persecution, to turn back from following Christ and return back to the Jewish system to return back to the ceremonial laws, to return back to the temple practices, to turn back to all of the Jewish trappings as a means of being obedient to God. And the premise of the writer of Hebrews is saying, in kind of shorthand, you can't go back because that is not what, where God is working. That's how he began Hebrews chapter 1. He said in various places, in various ways, God spoke through many ways in the past. Remember Hebrews 1, verse 1? But in these final days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And then he goes on to talk about the superiority of Jesus in chapter 1, of Jesus uh, over against all those who preceded the prophets of the past. He talks about the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And then he talks about the superiority of Jesus over Moses. Now, you know, to a Jew, I mean, that's, that's, that you mean Jesus is even greater than Moses. Yeah, because Moses was just a representative of the message. Jesus himself was the message, okay? And so, uh, and that's kind of where he goes into chapter 4 and 5, talking about the high priestly role. Jesus is different than the earthly priest. So he's getting into this, this, this deep uh, exhortation to remind them of what they have in Christ so that as they begin to look and compare or flirt with the idea of going back, they're going back into a dead system that God is not in, that God is not working. That again, chapter 1, verse 1, in these final days, he has spoken to us by Jesus, his son. Jesus is where it's at, all right? Jesus is where it's at, where it's been, and where it's going, okay? And that, so that's, remember that big picture there. And one of the troubles he has is that, as we said, that they, by this time of all that they've been exposed to, they're still struggling with just the basics of the gospel. They're just still struggling. And, and, and so remember, he stops kind of midstream here, talking about the high priest and Melchizedek, and he's like, wait a minute, I would love to keep giving you some really deep stuff, but you're like babies. You st I still need to spoon feed you, Okay. Um, let's kind of go on to the next verse. He said, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. He wants them to be skilled. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's calling them children. They're immature. They're believers. They're believers. 
but they are babies. They are immature in their spiritual walk. You with me? And again, the reason I'm belaboring this is because this will help us when we come to this more difficult part here in a few minutes, okay? He said, but solid food is for what? The mature. See, maturity, growing in your faith, coming to the full stature of Christ that Paul would later talk about. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The person who's growing in the Word of God is growing in discernment. That's the reason a person who is growing in the Word of God is growing in their mature faith. And for the most part, they're not being entangled up in, in, in doctrines and false teachings because they have a spiritual maturity in their, in their grid of knowing the Word of God, and they're able to have discernment over what is right and what is wrong. You remember I said discernment isn't just knowing right from wrong. Discernment, real discernment, is knowing the difference between right and almost right. You see what I'm saying? And that's where, again, being skilled in the Word of God is knowing the difference between right and almost right. When you look at the controversies and some of the early heresies of the church concerning the nature and person of Christ, it wasn't just real blatant. It was these subtle little nuances and differences in the way that some of the false teachers were saying about Jesus being God but less than God. And all these, and they were very subtle things. They were almost right. You know, um, listen, when you land a plane, you want to be, you want to be right. You know, if you want, if you got somebody operating on your body, you don't want them just to, well, how'd it go? Well, it was, it was pretty good. I was 80% on the mark, you know, I got, you know, you want them to be exact. All right. So he says, this is for the mature. And again, we're, uh, we're kind of belaboring this because again, context is really important. So then he comes to uh, is it chapter 6? Yeah, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, when you see therefore, what is it therefore? Therefore is kind of a in conclusion, in conclusion, or in light of what I just said. Okay, remember, verses and chapters weren't put in until the mid-19th century. They were done for publishing and ease of reading, all right? So when Paul wrote, or whoever wrote Hebrews or others wrote, they didn't write in... Chapter 6, verse 1, verse 2, you know. Um, I remember in different times people uh, writing me a letter or writing my uncle was a pastor, and, and they wanted to be real spiritual, and they wrote a letter and used, like, verse numbers. Like, that was somehow spiritual. It was just showing them how goofy they were. But So the reason that's important is because when we read something and we come to a chapter break, our brain basically says, oh, this is something different. This means something different. So just keep it in. So therefore, based upon his desire that they grow up, that they be mature, what does he say? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to what? Maturity. He's not saying leave Christ. He's saying let's leave the ABCs, see Jack run, Jack has a ball, Let's leave the elementary basic things and let's go on to maturity. There's that word again. He, he, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. If I'm talking to unbelievers, I'm not talking to them about being mature in their faith because they're not believers. 
So these are people that have to, at least his, who he has in mind, that he's wanting them to go and be mature and not have to be going over these basic things and be toying with the idea of abandoning the gospel and going back into a system that God's presence and spirit is not moving in. The old Jewish, old covenant system. That's, again, that big picture. Not laying again. And he, we talked about not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead. Works and faith toward God. And of instruction about washings or baptism. Uh, baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And those are just kind of shorthand for just kind of the basic core foundations of of, of the faith, if you will. He's saying, look, those things are certainly important, and he calls them foundational elementary teachings and doctrines, but, but that's not it. We need to build on those things, right? Again, if somebody who's been a Christian for any length of time, um, and, and I've known people like this, and they've been in church for years, and they've sat under Sunday school and preaching and teaching and but yet they seem to still struggle with some of the real basic things of the Christian life. Somehow there's a disconnect there. They've never matured. They've never, they've never grown out of kindergarten or first grade and moved forward in their maturing. You know? Listen, my uh, you know, grand, grandchildren, well, they are mature because chronologically that's where they should be. But if they're still doing two-year-old things... When they're 30, something's wrong. Something is drastically wrong. So let's keep going. Um, and he talks about those foundational things, and we, we talked about those. And this we will do if God permits. Four, now, this is where we'll get to. He's going to um, keep in mind who he's talking to, and it's my understanding uh, and I know there's different approaches, but I'm convinced that he's speaking primarily to mature, saved believers. And just like he pivots in chapter 5 of verse 11 from talking about the high priestly nature of Christ, and he goes on to kind of getting back and saying, you guys need to grow up, you need to be mature. He pivots again a little bit in addressing they're an issue of growing in spiritual maturity, but this is, this is where the controversy is. Is chapter, four, or chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and uh, some of those that follow, is it addressing the possibility that a born-again Christian can turn away, be lost, go back, renounce their faith, or is something else going on here? My contention is he's not addressing genuine believers in this, these verses here. He's talking to mature believers, and he is addressing kind of the possibility of those who have a spurious or counterfeit faith that will be evidenced over time when they drift or leave the faith. It will show evidence that they never were believers to begin with, all right? I know that's, um, again, we'll kind of unpack it a little bit and, uh, and work our way through it in just a second here. So, again, remember the context. He's talking to 
immature believers, but he talks about the, these, the possibility that if, as if, you're saying, look, if immaturity continues to be a mark that, uh, of your life, then it's possible that maybe some of you uh, are not genuine, regenerate, converted people. Maybe if you have no desire to grow, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its what? By its fruit. By You'll see the life of the root and the fruit. Um, and so let's, let's kind of look at these verses 4 and 5 and grant you verses 4 and 5 seems to sound like characteristics of a true Christian, and I believe that's his point. He wants, in order to drive home his point, he wants, he wants the emphasis to be that people who turn away or apostates or apostatize from the faith, who give a surface commitment of being in the church, being being on the surface, looking like they are genuine, but, but in the end, their life, they turn away. He says, look, they look real. And he wants you to, and the reason these are called warnings is because he wants you to be warned that you're not yourself self-deceived because you have great privileges, because you're in a community of believers, because you're under the teaching of the Word of God. You remember the Israelites? Remember in, back in um, a few weeks back when we were in chapter 4 and um, 5, one of the things that was in chapter 4 and 5, the writer of Hebrews used the example, I think it was 4 and 5, but chapter, um, yeah, chapter, chapter 3, no, chapter 4, yeah, chapter 4. Yes, he used the example of the Old Testament believers uh, as an example of those who were identified with Israel. They were part of the chosen people. They were part of the nation of Israel. But in the wilderness, here they were part of this great miraculous exodus of being delivered out of Egypt. But remember what he says, that the evidence of where their relationship was with the Lord was evidence in the trial of the wilderness because they did not mix the truth of God, paraphrasing, with faith. And so what happened to that generation in the wilderness? Just about every one of them except a few died in the wilderness. And the Lord says they died because they were disobedient. Even though they were, from all, all practical purposes, they were part of Israel. But yet, evidence over time, they did not prove to be genuine adherents or genuine followers of the Lord because their disobedient hearts were evidence and they died disobediently in the wilderness. They weren't, we would say, they were not really saved. They gave an impression of salvation. Now, remember all the things that they were exposed to. And when you think about the Exodus, um, talking about the Israelites. And I think that's what he has a little bit in mind because that's what he's talking about in chapter 4. He's saying, don't be like them. 
Remember the scripture that says these things happen to them to be examples to us so that we could learn not to repeat those same mistakes? Even though they had the great privilege of being exposed to the things of God, I mean, they were, they were personally witnesses to the uh, deliverance from Egypt. Um, they experienced the parting of the Red Sea, the column of fire, the cloud by day, water coming from a rock at Moses' command, manna that appeared each morning. Uh, they saw Moses come down from the mountain with his face shining so brightly the people couldn't look at it. They, uh, there was the thunder that they could hear from the mountain. They were exposed and to the Ten Commandments, the law of God. They had all of these things, but yet God says, what? That the privileges in and of themselves did not guarantee their relationship with the Lord. Think about those in Jesus' day. Think about those that benefited John 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000. You had a mass of people that ate over this miracle. But then when he began to get to the real heart of what it means to follow him, the Bible says that many turned away and walked with him no more. They benefited from the miracles. Think about those that benefited from the healings, people that had demons cast out, the people that witnessed all these things. Think about Judas. Was Judas not himself? I mean, he was numbered among the 12. From all appearances, nobody would have questioned. In fact, nobody did question the authenticity of Judas's faith until after he had committed his treasonous act against Christ. In fact, he was so trusted, guess what? They let him handle the money. So, the deception of being a believer is something I think that the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home here. But let me point out one other thing here, and I should have done it earlier. Um... Yeah, let me jump to it. Talking about the context, look back over. Let me uh, go back over to verse 11. Uh, let's see, verse 11 and 12. Um, notice the words where he's using verse 11 and 12. He says, you, okay? Who's he talking to? You. Um, you. He's talking about you that need to be mature, uh, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God, you need milk. Again, keep with me the flow of who he's talking to here. For everyone who loves milk and the word of God writes since he's a child. Um, so he's talking about you, but then in verse 1, he says... Us, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. I think he's, again, he's still talking to Christians, to believers, immature, but he's still talking to believers. He's talking about leaving the basic principles. This we will do if God permits. He's, again, he's, he's writing to believers, but then he changes a little bit as though he is thinking of a possible hypothetical group that could be among them because no matter how well I pastor a church, I don't know anybody's heart except mine. And even then, I need God's discernment. Like David, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. So the writer doesn't know infallibly 
the condition of the hearers. And so he kind of changes gears here because notice he goes from the you and the us, and he's talking about somebody among those who have tasted the heavenly and have shared. Who are the those there? Um, and again, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, who have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers. Verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them. It's not you and us. It's, it's some other group that he's thinking of that if the possibility that they were to continue down this road, that it could very well be a demonstration that they might be in this group who, even though they were exposed to the tremendous truths of God's word, actually in evidence will give, give proof that they never were really converted to begin with. Do you see that? He's talking about the them, the they. It's not the us and we. The us and we and the you, those are the believers. Now, now that may be, again, I may not be explaining it as good as I want to, but again, what I want you to see is that when you read, make sure you're reading carefully and who's being talked about there. Don't take something in verse 6 and apply it to somebody in verse 11. I think his audience is to Christians. He's trying to encourage Christians to get off their duff and get in, get, get, that's a Greek word, and grow. Quit being lazy. But then he pivots to, the, to this possibility that within that body, just like in any given Sunday within that body, there may be those that, for all practical purposes, bring their Bibles, take good notes, faithful, but they are not converted. That's the them, they. He's not implying that these genuine believers, even though they're immature, can be lost. He's saying the only people that can be lost are those that were never converted to begin with. Is that... You with me there? Okay. Well, they, they might, but somehow there was a disconnect between their heart. I go back to Matthew 7. They did all the activities, like Judas. Judas participated in... All that he witnessed, all the miracles, all the, but somehow, in fact, it says he never, he never, from the beginning, from the beginning, he never was converted. He was, he was, you know, he was never a follower. Even though he gave outward confession, he gave outward acts, those that Paul talks about in, uh, to those Ephesian elders, ravenous wolves among you. You do think they went and turned and said, all right, we know who those guys are. They didn't have a clue. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all turn and look at Judas. They began to say, is it me? Is it me? Because, again, a counterfeit follower will look like, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares Jesus gave and talks about how they grow and they look identical. The tares or the weeds look like genuine wheat. And it's only the judgment of the angel of the Lord that is sent to put the sickle to the harvest that will separate the genuine from the false. So we come back 
to verse 4. Let's look at some of these things here. He's giving descriptions that sound like they're Christians. Well, let's hear what he's saying. Try to unpack it as best we can. He says they were once enlightened. Now, won't turn to it, but in Hebrews 10, um, 32, I believe, it does use the word enlightened to refer to somebody who has come into the full knowledge of truth. So you read that and you say, oh, they were, they were enlightened. It looks like they were, they were genuine believers. They were enlightened. I mean, that they were once enlightened. But I would suggest to you that that isn't always the way to be exposed to knowledge or to be enlightened isn't always means that that person comes into the full knowledge of the truth. Remember in John, I'll just read it. In John, give you an example. In John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, talking about Christ, the true light which gives light to everyone. To everyone, it gives light. They're all enlightened in one sense, right? The true light of Christ has enlightened everyone was coming into the world. He was, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, even though they were exposed to the light, it says the world did not know him. In fact, he came to his own and his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They had a lot of enlightenment. They had the enlightenment of the prophets. They had the enlightenment of prophetic scriptures. But even though they were enlightened, it doesn't mean that they, were, they came into the full knowledge of the truth. That is a characteristic of a believer, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. They were exposed, just like those in John 6 of the feeding of the 5,000, they were exposed to the miraculous workings of the Messiah. Those that were, saw the healings, what about that crowd at Bethany that saw Lazarus walk out of that tomb on day four? They saw, but does that mean that they attributed or that that miracle that they witnessed translated into a receiving of Jesus as Messiah. Receiving. So enlightened, I don't think always means conversion, okay? And I think in this case it doesn't. But they were enlightened. They were exposed, if you will. Remember the parable of the seeds and the soils? At one point, all those seeds had some exposure to, to some growth, did it not? You know, some fell on shallow, rocky, you know, and some were exposed to the sun, whatever. They all were enlightened, if you will, but it was only the seed that fell on the good soil that germinated and produced fruit. So a person can be exposed to truth. A person can be in the environment of the truth. A person can be witnesses of the truth, but never be converted. I think that's what is being said here. Then it says they have tasted the heavenly gift. Honestly, not a lot of people are even in agreement what the heavenly gift is, but for whatever it is that they tasted, and you could just say that they were exposed to the blessings that came with being in, if you want to say in, among believers. They, they tasted it. They, uh, they sampled it. They, they tasted it. They benefited from it. Thirdly, it says they even shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the powers to come. I think this is still 
in that same limited enlightenment, uh, enlightened view that they, they, they benefited from the exposure of the works of God, but it didn't change their heart. Again, I go back to Jesus' earthly ministry. All the miracles he did, all the people that were exposed to those miracles, but yet how many of them attributed and connected those miracles to their need? Now, much different than Peter. You remember the miracle on the boat when Jesus told Peter to cast his net over to one side of the boat? And he said, you know, we've been fishing all day, Lord, you know. You're a good carpenter, but why don't you leave the fishing to us? And then, of course, he did it like if, you know, he was kind of reluctant. You really like, all right, like we're going to humor him. He's our guest, so we'll humor him. And you know what happened, right? Uh, the haul of fish was so great. What was Peter's response to the miracle? He said, I am a sinful man. Do you see the difference between his response to uh, the miracle versus those that were like, in John 6, hey, let's make him king because he's handing out free food. That's what the majority of the people said in John chapter 6. Peter's response to the miracle of the Messiah was what? I'm not even worthy to be in your sight. So, again, how that translates in the miracle of conversion, that's... that's the mystery of God and that Jesus talked about in John 3. The wind blows where it wills. We don't know where we can't discern always the direction and how uh, it moves. Remember his conversation in John 3? But they shared um, in the Holy Spirit, this heavenly gift shared. I think about uh, Christians who can, ex or, or, um, Non-Christians, uh, people who are not, and I mentioned Judas. Another person in the Old Testament was King Saul. Remember King Saul? Before David, there was King Saul. In fact, there's one place. Now, we know that King Saul um, ended up demonstrating apostasy because he rejected God's ways. And even his depth of rebellion was so great, he even consulted a witch, a sorcerer to try to discern God. He was so self-deceived. But the Bible says that even King Saul, uh, at one point in 1 Samuel 10, 11, prophesied to the people. So again, it is possible for unbelievers to be exposed and even for a season to exhibit uh, characteristics of being among the community of believers and Christians and benefit uh, or, or who benefit from those things, to exhibit fruit that seems to be genuine spirit-led faith. But, but the possibility is that they're not. They're not converted. See, if deception was so easy, uh, I don't say it wouldn't be a big deal, but that's the nature... Uh, repeat myself in Matthew 7, that the deception, when Jesus said, there will be those to me who come to me on that day, that even being in the, as 
whether they're dead and resurrected, whatever, but they are in that final day before the judgment seat of Christ, and they still don't get the fact that they are lost. Because what are they saying? Lord, Lord, we did this. We did that. Hey, it's us. You would think that being thrust into the presence of the living Christ, there would be, a, there'll be those that come to me on that day begging. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. And it will be too late. But that isn't what he's saying. There will be those that the deception is so deep and so great, that's just my take, that even dead and in the presence, resurrected, or whatever the situation, that they are waving their spiritual resumes to prove to Jesus that they are genuine followers of Jesus. And they got the, they got the evidence, casting out demons, prophesying in your name, etc., etc., etc. But Jesus said, I never knew you. You weren't, you weren't a part of what I was doing. It says they. Uh, let me, oh, another, and I, before, I'm still on that. Shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the powers to come. I wouldn't. One thing that I did think of is that the. Um, the parable of the mustard seed, uh, in Mark, I think it's in Mark four, talks about the little mustard seed. That and, he, and again, this is a parable of the kingdom, that that little seed doesn't seem to have much significance in its early stages of growth, but eventually grows to where all the birds of nature benefit from the growth of that little mustard seed that blossoms into a great tree. And again, one of the things that is taught, I think, in that parable is what is called common grace, that as the church flourishes, as the kingdom of God grows, guess what? Unbelievers benefit from the church. I mean, when you look at the history of orphanages, hospitals, uh, mercy-type ministries, uh, even the movement to end slavery, Wilberforce in England, that's not saying that false Christians adhered to evils, right? But genuine believers who knew truth recognize that these were things that were evil and shouldn't be, and we need to exercise um, the principles of the Word of God and, and, and change this evil in society. Uh, early Christians were noted because of infanticide, which is kind of pretty much what's going on today. You can take the life of a child up until literally moments before birth, but babies were abandoned on the roads outside of uh, you know, in um, uh, Rome and, and um, ancient nations. And, and it was noted that the Christians that would come and rescue these abandoned babies. My point is, is that unbelievers benefit and have benefited from the church, have benefited from the Holy Spirit, have benefited from the fruit of the gospel. But just because they... <clears throat> benefit in the blessings just because they share 
in the fruit of the Spirit, just because they have been exposed or tasted of the powers, which I think is speaking about the messianic kingdom, just because they've been exposed to those things does not in and of itself mean that it evidences their conversion. Is that... It says, number four, they tasted the goodness of the word of God, sitting week after week, hearing the truth. Think about all those that Jesus taught that, it, that heard not just truth, but they heard the truth giver. And where were they? Did that lead into their conversion? Now it says here, this is, the, this is what's a little always controversial. Where he says, for it is impossible in the case of those. Do you see? Those, he's not saying you, us, we. I think he has this hypothetical group in mind that almost, again, remember what these are. They're warnings. Maybe say it this way. If I wanted to warn my children about the use of drugs, just whatever, whatever you want to warn them about, I'll just say that. Remember, there are those that when they get entangled with this and they become addicted and, they, and, and I'm giving the description of all the characteristics of they and those and I come back like what he'll say in a few verses, but I've got confidence that that's not going to happen to you. That's what he says in a few verses. So when he says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted, shared, etc., etc., and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up for contempt. And here's, here's my thought. That's my thought. Hopefully it's somewhat consistent with the Lord's thought. It is possible, at least according to Scripture, that there is such a rejection of God that there is no return back. And this is, where, this is my thought example is in Romans chapter 1. I think Romans one twenty eight is on your outline there. But remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul establishes the depravity of humanity, man's great sinfulness, because before he can get to justification by faith and the forgiveness in Christ and the atonement, he's establishing that whether you're Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, you all, we are all under the condemnation and guilt of sin. You with me? Remember Romans 1? All right. Um, and then in that, in fact, I was going to save it for later. Turn to Romans 1 instead of me hacking away at it. Let's just look at it. Because I think to me, this is something to consider in trying to discern 
when he says it is impossible, even though they've been exposed and have all, all these benefits, but have rejected, he said there is an impossibility for them to ever be restored, to ever be returned. Um, look at verse 18, Romans 1, 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? It doesn't mean they're not exposed to the truth. And this is called general revelation, that the truth that they're exposed to, that they willingly suppress it. They suppress it. That's a, it's kind of like, again, you know, maybe uh, you know, when you were a kid or one of your kids, they, you put your fingers in your ear and you're like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, you su- I always think of a jack-in-the-box. Remember, not the hamburger, but you know, the jack-in-the-box. You know, what do you do? You suppress that little clown and shut the lid. You suppress it. You hold it down. What do they do with the truth? They're exposed to it. They're enlightened. They have some light, but... Again, in the context, he's talking about the sinfulness and the depravity of humankind that even though just they're exposed to it, their sin, they reject the truth. They suppress the truth for what can be made known about God. And here he's talking about general revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how's he done that? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So Paul says that in a basic level, man has exposure of God as creator because just by observation of creation, creation is very orderly, four seasons, you look at growth, you look at birth, you look at, you look at the creation, and did all this happen by random chance and accident? Well, it seems, how does disorder lead to order? And so he says the creation, in fact, if you remember, remember when Paul went to Athens at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, I think the King James says, and he's speaking to those uh, pagan philosophers, he doesn't begin with saying, now turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 9. No. He says, I'm here to proclaim to you the, the unknown God that you have an altar to. And where does he begin? I'm here to tell you about the God who created all things. He, where does he begin? He begins with God as creator. And he says, and this God has commanded all people, whether you know it or not, to repent. Why? Because you're under his authority, whether you realize it or not. He begins with God as creator. Kind of Again, that's what Paul's doing here. For ever since the creation of the world, latter part of verse 20, that God has been seen, perceived, and the things that have been made. And then Paul says, and that's why they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So these are people that, in one sense, and again, I'm just making a little bit of a parallel, they've been exposed, they've been enlightened to some role, um, 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idolatry, resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What it, you could say in one sense, they apostatized the truth they were exposed to. And verse 24, the Bible says, among, it says it at least three times, maybe four times, what happened? Verse 24, therefore God... What? Gave them up or gave them over. Now, let's go back to Hebrews. There is a precedence for those who reject to have an impossibility that God, like those in Romans 1, gave them over, who apostatize, if you will, what they were exposed to, because he says they're without excuse, that there is a judgment of God, that there's no return. I mean, at least that's what Romans 1 is explaining. When God gave them over, he, didn't, he did not create fresh sin in their life and make them do... No, what did he do? He gave them over to their natural fallen depravity of what they were inclined to do. What were they inclined to do? Suppress the truth, exchange the truth of God to represent the image of God to creatures and animals. They were not, they were not embracing the truth that God was, was giving them as creator, but instead they took that truth and they rejected the truth. They apostatized. They actually turned it into a false view of the true God. And so God, if you will, in this paraphrase, when it says he gave them up, he gave them over, he didn't just make them do something that they were not. He just, in essence, he just, and let them go. In the words of Fleetwood Mac, go your own way. So we're trying to figure out this Gordian knot here in Hebrews 6. I think that is, again, those who this hypothetical, or I don't want to say hypothetical, but those who have a false counterfeit, even though on the surface it looks genuine, that when they reject the truth, that... In the language of 1 John, I think 1 John is written there in your notes, 1 John 2, 18 and 19, that the person who perseveres in their apostasy, I'm going to end it here and we'll pick it up next week, that the person who perseveres in their rejection, in their apostasy, proves that they are truly apostate. It proves and become, it becomes evident who they really are. Isn't that what, and I'll close with 1 John 2, 18 and 19, and I think, is that in your outline? Do I have it printed out? Yes, no? Reference, okay. Uh, let me read it. It's familiar because we, is it on the back? All right. Yes, no? Everybody? Or on the back, all right. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Remember what John said. 
He said, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists, so if you're trying to worry about the Antichrist, there's many that he said even back then were out running around, have come. They've already come. I'll let you chew on that. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's saying it's the last hour before the first century was even. So uh, let that stew in your eschatology brew. Verse 19, here's what I want you to see. They, see there's that they. Who's they? Must be some group that he's got in mind who did actions. They, they, people that demonstrated an anti Anti, don't be thinking about some leader in Europe with 666 on his head. He's saying anybody apostate is an anti-Christ, okay? They demonstrated that they were anti-Christ. They were against Christ. Verse 19, they went out from us. So that tells me if they went out from us, they must have been... Among us. But what does he say? But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they, there's the they, they went out, turned away, apostatized, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, we'll hack away at this next week, but I want you to at least consider in the realm of possibility that those, and that's why, again, I would encourage you to go back, start at verse 11 of chapter 5, read down through verse 12, make sure that in this gap or this, this, this chunk of conversation that you make sure you know who he's talking to and know the difference because, and let me just jump ahead here. I said I would quit, but I'll quit, promise, here. We may just move on next week, I don't know. But look in your Bible. He's talking about verse 6, and they have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again. He gives the example for a land that has drunk the rain. And he's just giving this picture that land that has drunk the rain, that has benefited from the rain. It's an agricultural society, so agricultural illustrations work. For land that is drunk from the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to the, for those who, uh, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Those who take and benefit from all the, the Word and the Holy Spirit and all these things that they've been exposed to, that take and it germinates, they benefit from the blessings of God. He's using this as, a, as an illustration. But if that same rain on that same field bears thorns and thistles, that land is what? Worthless. In fact, it's near to being cursed, and in the end it's burned. They had the same rain, but different effects on the ground. The same way with these, these people. Now, here's where I want you to see verse 9. I want you to see, just as he pivoted in moving and talking about them and talking about this they and those, these apostates, what is he? he comes back to them. Though we speak in this way, yet in your 
case. Do you see how he gets back to talking directly to these immature believers? You see that? But in your case, beloved, the folks in verse 4 and 5 and 6, they're not beloved. They're apostates. But he's talking to these beloved believers who are immature. But he says, but in your case, we, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's talking to Christians the whole time. But when he talks about this audience or this group in 4, 5, and 6, it's not the possibility that these genuine believers would apostatize, but he's giving a strong warning to those that perhaps, because he doesn't know their heart, that perhaps may be in this group who have a false counterfeit faith and their immaturity isn't immaturity because they're just lazy and lacking growth, but their immaturity really is a deeper evidence that they have no desire to grow because what? They are dead. Dead things don't grow. All right. I know that was like drinking out of a fire hydrant a little bit. But you got to go back to your Bibles. And I would just challenge you. I recognize there's a lot of different approaches. And that's why, again, I start with the premise that I believe the believer is eternally secure. So therefore, I don't ever see in Scripture contradictions. There's either something I don't understand or the greater broad Scripture gives me light on what is not clear in order to make clear. So I don't believe this is teaching that a genuine follower of Jesus, a genuine born-again, regenerate follower of Christ can be eternally lost. I don't believe that's what it's teaching there because if you look at it in context, I think that helps us. So really, the interpretation, if you'll take time to read slowly, mark words, you versus they, and who he's talking to, it really kind of helps you interpret it itself if you'll take time. Don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Right? It's hard. It's hard. I'd love to have skipped it and got on to side. I want to talk about Jesus as the high priest. That's funner. This is hard. It's hard to dig, because especially when you know that. All right. Father, thank you. Help us, Lord. You're the one that enlightens us. Your Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. Help us to be good students of the Word and, Lord, to be diligent seekers of truth. Lord, let nobody take my Word for anything. Lord, let them be convinced by their own Bible, their own study, uh, listening and discerning God truth. Lord, help us to be those good students that honor and please you. Lord, not for head knowledge, but, Lord, how we can be and exemplify Jesus and how we ourselves can be reminded, Lord, that only by your Spirit, God, do you keep us safe and secure. And so, Father, we bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.